the book of Philemon. Right between the book of Titus and Hebrews. And as you guys are going in and taking your seats here, let's have a quick word of prayer. We'll get started then. Uh, Lord, good to be here this morning and just to fellowship, to worship, to talk of you, to grow together as a body of Christ in you. Thank you for this time. I just pray as always you would teach, we would listen, let your spirit guide and direct. And we just say thank you in your name. Amen. We finished up our study in 2 Peter last week. And so, therefore, I was kind of going through the New Testament here, Old Testament, kind of praying over what book to go through. And, and I got into the book of Philemon. And I thought Philemon would be a great book to go through. If you look here, it's only one chapter. It's only 25 verses. I remember hearing a teaching from Chuck Swindoll years ago where he called this a postcard. And it's that little idea of a postcard in the New Testament. And the reason I like Philemon so much, and I think it was something to kind of stop and do, Philemon is one of the most practical books you'll find in the New Testament. Just a straightforward, practical Christianity book of how to live the life. You know, with Second Peter, we got into some prophecy. We got into some theology. Here with Philemon, it's just straightforward how do Christians handle a situation. What is the situation that's going on? Well, there's three main people you need to know in this book. Paul, that's obviously writing it. He's writing it to a man by the name of Philemon. Philemon had a servant, had a slave that ran away whose name was Onesimus. So Onesimus ran away. Well, while Onesimus ran away, Paul ran into Onesimus, and Onesimus got saved. So now Paul is writing on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon to say, Hey, this person, this person that wronged you, is now your brother in Christ. What are you going to do? Are you going to let it go? Are you going to let him come back as a brother? What's going to happen? So there's three main people here. You have Paul, who's trying to be the peacemaker to seek the Lord. You have Onesimus, who was wrong, got saved, and now is a new creation in the Lord. And then you have Philemon, who has to decide, am I going to let it go? I have been hurt. I have been wronged. What am I going to do about this? And so we see all three different things here. And depending on where you're at in life, you're probably in one of those positions. You're in the position of Paul, trying to make peace. You're in the position of Onesimus, that you have wronged somebody, and now but you're right in the Lord, and you want to build bridges of peace. Or you're in the position of Philemon, of saying, someone has hurt me, somebody has wronged me, what am I going to do with this information? So with that being said, it's a great, practical, straightforward book. Now, the background to this, before we get into it, I also want to let you know is Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a life-changing passage. Matthew 18 makes it very clear. If someone has hurt you or wronged you, you go to them and to them alone, and you try to make peace and see what happens. Now, if they choose not to listen, there are steps that need to be followed after that, bringing witnesses, taking it to the church. But the first initial step, if someone has hurt you or wronged you, is for you to be prayerfully ready to go to them and to try to build a bridge of peace to let them know. Church, we need to do a better job at that. So often when somebody's hurt us or wronged us, we initially become angry, we become bitter, we become frustrated. And then we start telling two, three, four, five other people. And next thing you know, instead of going to the person to try to make peace, we're now letting everybody know bitterness has set in, anger has set in, Satan has a foothold. And then all that time and energy that could have been spent spreading the gospel, that time and energy is now spent in a fight and an argument and trying to prove that we're right. Let's just follow straight forward what the Bible says. If someone has hurt you or wronged you, you go to them and you say, I want to try to make peace with this and I want to forgive. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through Philemon. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. To the beloved Aphia, 
Archippus, our fellow soldier, into the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of Paul's typical greeting here, but please note one thing he doesn't mention. He usually says, Paul, an apostle. This is more of a friendly type letter. This is not a letter of theology. This is not a letter to a church who's doing something wrong. This is a letter to a friend. To say, friend, I want to talk to you about this situation. Please also note, too, he's a prisoner, verse 1. This is one of Paul's prison epistles. So Paul is writing this from prison. Same time frame as Colossians. If you're going through the Colossians small group with us, you're going to realize that some of the points that we're making here are very, very similar. So this is one of his prison epistles. Please note as you go through this epistle, you don't see Paul crying out, get me out of here. He realizes this is where the Lord wants him. What does it mean to be an apostle? Apostle means one who has been sent. So you've been sent by the Lord to do what his will is. So if Paul was in prison, that's exactly where God wants him to be. So therefore, he has been sent to be in prison and the fruit that has come out of it. What fruit has come out of it? Onesimus got saved. Do you realize how often as believers our prayer is, Lord, use me. I want to be used by you. Let me change the world, but let me do it in the most comfortable way possible. Paul in prison had fruit. Chained to a Roman guard, he was still witnessing for Jesus Christ. I just want to encourage you, if you're going through a situation right now, and it's a very difficult situation, it may be exactly where the Lord wants you to be. Because that may be the time that you can produce more fruit for the Lord than you could ever imagine. Because ministry, it's not about you. It's not about your life situations. It's about the Lord. And wherever you're at, the Lord can and will use you. Paul in prison, people are getting saved. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Who are these people he's talking about? Well, we have Philemon. To the beloved Apiphia. This is a female name. It could be his wife. Archippus, who's also mentioned in the book of Colossians. This could possibly be a son. Could be a family member. We don't know for sure. But there's a church that meets in his house. So this man Philemon is obviously a believer. A strong believer. And Paul says, I need to talk to you about this situation. So let's see what happens. Verse 4. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So he says, I make mention of you always in my prayers. I remember one of the first teachings I did about 20 years ago was when Samuel told the nation of Israel, far be it that I should sin against the Lord by not praying for you. And I remember such a simplicity of that. Sinlessness is, excuse me, prayerlessness is sin. And I just started thinking and remembering that if I tell somebody I'm going to pray for them and I don't, I'm sinning. If someone asks me to pray for them and I don't, I'm missing an opportunity. So what I do is this. I I carry this around almost everywhere I go. And if somebody says, hey, could you please remember to pray for me, my cousin, whatever, I try to write it down. Because I will forget. And if I don't have this with me, I will right there at that moment say a quick prayer. Because I don't ever want to lie about it. Or if there's an opportunity and it works out, I'll say, hey, why don't we just pray right now for this situation? Because I want to do what it says in verse 4. Making mention of you always in my prayers. I want to be praying. Now, you may stop and think, okay, if I'm making mention always in my prayers of people, there's not enough time in the day. You know what it means to make mention in the original Greek? It means just that, to mention it. How long does it take? What does it look like to make mention of someone in prayer? 
Okay, let's say there's a guy named Fred that's going to have surgery on Tuesday out here at church. And let's say he said, hey, can you keep that in prayer? I got this thing going on Tuesday. Let's say it's a work, surgery. I don't know. So I get up Tuesday morning, and I take a look at what I've written down, and I've written down Fred. Fred's got this situation going on, and he asks for prayer. So Tuesday morning, I get up, and I just do this. You know, Lord, I just want to give you Fred. Just pray that you'd be with him today. Give him wisdom and guidance. Just let the peace of God be upon him and your hand to be upon him and guide him in this situation. Five seconds. I made mention of Fred in my prayers. Five seconds. I cared. I loved. I meant it sincerely. And I will follow up with Fred. I'll shoot him a text later that day. How did it go? I'll ask him next week at church. Five seconds. Now just think about this for a second. I, had, I spent too much time on this. 24 hours in a day. 1,440 minutes in a day. 86,400 seconds in a day. I spent five seconds praying for Fred. That means I spent .000058 in my day giving Fred over to the Lord. I think I have that time to do that. Now that's for the hypothetical Fred. Let's say there's a deeper situation going on. Let's say there's a marriage falling apart or something like that. I may spend time in fasting and prayer for that. Maybe my wife, my kids, the vision of the church. My point is this. We are all busy. There's always things going on. But there's time for prayer. We just have to decide that that's the priority of the day. When you have 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds, I think there's enough time in the day to make mention in prayer for the people that have said, would you please pray for me? When people say that they have prayed for me, that means more than anything. They took time out of their day. They stopped their day to say, I want to lift up James to the Lord. That means a lot to me. I never take that for granted. So therefore, if I come to you and say, I'm praying for you, I may even say in a text or something like that, I don't say it lightly. I'm praying for you. Because one of those phrases in Christianity is, I'll pray for you. And then we walk out the door and we don't even think about it. Let's do exactly what Paul says. Make mention you've always in prayers. Let's take the time. You will be blessed because you are involved in their lives. And when you see God work in their lives, you think, wow, Lord, it's exciting to have a small part in that and what you're doing. What else do we hear about him? Verse 5, this guy Philemon. We hear of your love and faith. Love and faith. Two things, love and faith. Those are two important points. Love. John 13, Jesus said, They will know that you are my disciples by your love. Faith. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Love and faith. Can you imagine taking your name and putting that in verse 5? If your name is mentioned, would the first two things people say about you is, Ah, James. Yeah, I really hear about his love for the Lord and about his faith in the Lord. Boy, what a compliment that would be. Is that when they hear about Philemon, Paul says, I hear about your love and your faith. Those are the two things that are so important to the Lord. Love towards Jesus, verse 5, and love towards the saints, the body of Christ. That's what God has asked us to do towards Jesus and the body of Christ. Do people see that in you? Is your love evident? Is your faith evident? Do people hear about it? Do people see it? Not to bring attention towards you. What does it say in Matthew 5? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then glorify your Father in heaven. Because you're letting your love and your faith shine. And then what do you do when you let your love and your faith shine? Verse 6, you share your faith. You get out there and you do something. Remember when we finished up our study in Matthew, we talked about that word go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So often what we see as a church is we see stay. We're supposed to go. 
Everything we do, verse 6, is a little bit of a missions trip. Every interaction we have is turning just the normal into something spiritual. Lord, I'm open. I'm available. How can I represent you? And I just want to represent you in all that I say and do and share my faith. I was uh, doing a hospital visit earlier this week. And, you know, in the hospital, you, you park in the parking garage, and you try to find your way around. And some of the times those hospitals up in Toledo, they're just like a bit of a maze. I, I go up there on a regular basis. I know my way around them. It's not a problem for me. So I get to, I believe it was Toledo Hospital this week I was up at. And they had to park all the way up at the top roof. So you, you kind of get in the elevator with somebody, and you end up following them for an extended period of time because you're in the parking garage, you're in the elevator, then you're going into the hospital, you're walking in together. And this is a little bit of an older woman, and so we're in the elevator, and we just start talking. And so I just always start a conversation, Lord, where are you going to take it? So she mentions that uh, she's been coming, she still doesn't know her way around, and she's coming a lot. And I said, oh, okay, why, why are you coming? I've noticed it's a great opportunity to start a conversation because generally when someone's coming to the hospital, they're not coming for fun. There's a reason. Well, she has a grandson that's in the PICU. Oh, what's your grandson's name? His name is Kyle. Hey, I will pray for Kyle. And so it starts up a godly conversation. And she's like, well, you know, I appreciate that. She goes, I just, I don't even know where I'm going. I said, that's no problem. I said, I can get you to where you need to go. So the only thing I'm thinking about is, okay, Kyle. We're going to pray for Kyle and, you know, let the Lord lead, let the Lord guide. She's trusting me to get her to this area. I know my way around Toledo Hospital. Okay, I was so focused on Kyle, I took her to the basement of Toledo Hospital. Have you been to the basement of Toledo Hospital? People go there and they don't leave. It's creepy. It's, she probably thought I was going to mug her. I don't know. And because she's like, I think we're in the basement. And it's like, oh, oh, yeah. Well, I, I got you off on the wrong floor. And then we take her back to the right floor. And, and all this time, and I'm just thinking, Lord, I just want to pray for Kyle. You know, I want to represent you as I'm taking you to the dark dungeon basement of Toledo Hospital. But I want to share my faith. And I wanted to say, Lord, I'm available. What does it look like? Because that's what verse 6 is I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to represent love. I'm supposed to represent faith towards Jesus and the saints. Verse 6, I'm supposed to share my faith. And I'm also supposed to, in verse 6, acknowledge every good thing that's in Christ. Understand that everything is his. Everything is about him. It's not about me. It's about him. And when I understand this, verse 7, joy. For we have great joy. Joy only comes when I understand, verse 6, it's all about him. When I understand, I'm supposed to share my faith. Verse 5, when I understand that I'm supposed to represent the love and faith of Christ. And verse 4, when I'm in prayer. See, a lot of times I run into believers, and they want joy. The joy of the Lord is their strength. Okay, where does joy come from? Joy comes from acknowledging everything is the Lord, sharing your faith, praying for people, representing love, etc. A lot of times I run into believers, and they feel very stale. They know the truth, they read the Bible, they're in the Word, they're coming to church, they're serving. But are you doing these things? Are you sharing your faith? I tell you, the most exciting thing in the world is to share your faith. It's just, you get to impact eternity for a tiny brief moment. That's amazing. So much of our world revolves around, what am I going to eat next? What time do I have to be at work? What time this? What time that? My goodness, when you get a chance to really just step back and see it's all about eternity and representing the Lord in whatever conversation you have, there's a joy in that. Because it takes you out of the here and now and it puts you into something deeper spiritually. And I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and your Christian walk has become a crawl, and maybe it's a little stale, when's the last time you did what verse 6 said? 
sharing your faith. That all of a sudden brings back the purpose to why I'm here, to represent Christ and all that I do and say. And the resulting of this is joy. And what is the other result of this? Look at the end of verse 7. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. To be refreshed. Now, it's a wonderful to be refreshed. There are people that you are just refreshed with. You're just sitting there, and as soon as you come in the, see them come in the room, you're just refreshed. They bring a joy to you. They bring a peace. They really represent the Lord, and you're just a joy to be around them. There's also people that you're refreshed when they leave the room, that you've been around them, and it drags you down. Very simple, straightforward question, not trying to make a joke. Are people refreshed by your entrance, or are they refreshed by your exit? Because I know people that I'm refreshed when they leave. Because when they're around, I'm concerned about what I say. Because everything I say could be taken the wrong way. You feel like you're walking on eggshells. You feel like you can't do anything because they're always kind of grouchy in a bad mood, what have you. And it brings the whole area down. So when they leave, it's refreshing. I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person that when I enter... There's a refreshing. There's a joy. That's what Philemon had. That you are refreshing the brothers, the church, the body of Christ. I firmly believe that if we were walking back with Jesus 2,000 years ago, if we were sitting there and Jesus entered the room, there would be a joy. And that's what we're supposed to represent as the body of Christ. So Philemon has all these compliments. You have love, you have faith, and you're sharing your faith, you're acknowledging the Lord. There's joy. You're refreshing people. You're comforting people. Now, verse 8, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you, being such one as Paul, the age, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten all my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back, you therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed may not be compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Now Paul kind of gets to the point here. He says, listen, I could tell you to do this and I don't want to. I could drop the whole apostle term. I could command you that God wants you to do this. I don't want to do that, Philemon. Verse 9, I want to appeal to you. I want you to know, verse 10, that Onesimus has gotten saved since he ran away from you. What a neat thing that is. And basically the point is this. Is Philemon, I want you to start looking at Onesimus not as your runaway slave, but as your brother in the Lord. This is where practical Christianity comes in. Can we really do what the Bible says? According to Roman law, Philemon could have done a couple different things with Onesimus. One, he could have killed him. Runaway slaves could have been killed. Some estimates said that there were up to 60 million slaves servants in the Roman Empire, and they had very strict rules to keep a slave revolt from happening. So, Put to death for many offenses. Another one you could do, if you wanted to keep Onesimus, he could have taken it with the word that we would call fugitive, and they would brand that right on his forehead. So imagine you have a big F branded right on your forehead so that wherever you walked, wherever you went, people would know that you were a runaway slave. So Paul is saying, I could command you to do what's right, but I don't want to command you. I want to appeal to you. I want you to do what's right because it's just the right thing to do. Verse 14, not by compulsion, but voluntary. Man, when you see somebody who wants to do what's right, what a blessing that is. I know out here at church, and I don't know how to word this because I don't want to come across the wrong way. 
We can play the pastor card. We can go up to someone and say, the church needs you. You know, it would really be a blessing. I really think you should. And we could get people to fill in. We could get spots filled. We could do that by compulsion. But it will never be as fruitful as somebody who says, you know what, I was praying, and the Lord really just led me, and I want to get involved with this ministry. That's where you're really going to see fruit. Is when the person really just says, in my heart, I want to. So, Philemon, I could force you. I don't want to force you. I want you to want to. Because Onesimus is a different person. Take this out in verse 11. Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Now, in the original Greek, there's a play on words here. Onesimus' name means useful. So what he's really saying here in verse 11, who once was unprofitable or useless to you, but now is useful. Philemon would have got that wording right there. He's doing a play on words with Onesimus' name. This is a picture of us. Before you came to know Christ, you were unprofitable and useless. Now, I don't say that to be mean. That's just the truth of it. We're going through Romans on a uh, small group study that we're doing on Saturday morning with some guys, and we're in Romans 3. If you haven't read Romans 3 in a while, go read it. There is no one who does good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. So before we are born again and saved in Christ, we are unprofitable. We are useless. Once we get saved, the Holy Spirit is moving and working in us. Then all of a sudden, there's gifts, there's empowerment. The Holy Spirit's leading. He's upon you. And now I am profitable and useful to the Lord. So Onesimus before was just the runaway slave. Now he is your brother in the Lord. He's your brother in the Lord. And in fact, he is so useful, verse 13, I wish I could keep him. Onesimus is actually mentioned in the book of Colossians. Paul describes him as faithful and beloved. What a neat picture right there. But the right thing, verse 12, I'm sending him back. Now receive him. And we're going to see what you're going to do with this, Philemon. Are you going to brand him? Are you going to kill him? Or are you going to look at him as your brother in the Lord? Verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Philemon, did you ever stop and think? That his sin of running away, be it wrong, the Lord, verse 15, used it for a deeper purpose. And now he is your brother in the Lord, not just a slave. But isn't that what God does? He uses our mistakes. He uses our stupidity. And next thing you know, he's still getting the glory. That's the beauty of the Lord. I mess up on a daily basis, and God still gets the glory. Because I am useless apart from Christ. But Christ in me, I am now useful. So, so often we have a tendency to kick ourselves and push ourselves down. Yeah, verse 15, it was wrong. But guess what? There's something bigger going on. Now, think about that in the situation you're in right now in life. Maybe there's a financial situation. Maybe there's a health situation. There's a job situation, a relationship situation. And it's completely, utterly falling apart. Completely falling apart. Can you trust that the Lord may be working behind the scenes in ways you don't see or understand? that he can still get the glory from this situation. And your reaction to this situation is going to reveal a lot about your heart. We don't like those verses, do we? James chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into trials and tribulations. You know, 1 Peter 1, where the testing of your faith produces this. No, we don't like those. But the truth is, in difficult times, 
Sometimes God receives more glory than what we can ever imagine. I go back to the reference we had at the beginning of the message. Lord, I want to represent you in the most comfortable way I possibly can. What happens if the Lord says, I can use you in a way that's going to cause you some physical, some emotional, some financial hardship, but I'm going to get the glory. Are we willing to do that? Philemon, are you willing to accept the fact that he was wrong, but good can come out of this? And that's what he's appealing to him as. Not forcing him, but appealing to him. Verse 17, if you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Philemon, I trust you're going to do what's right. I will cover for him. I'll take care of whatever he has done, whatever he owes. I will do it. But I know this, verse 20. Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. The only thing that matters is the eternal. Let me paraphrase here a little bit. Philemon, you could be really upset about this. You could be angry about this. You could sit there and stew about this. But all that time and energy, Philemon, you're going to be put into anger over what Onesimus did. You're losing that time and energy for the Lord. Same thing still happens today. Some of you are here this morning. You have been wronged by somebody. You've been wronged majorly by them. There's no defense for what they've done. But all that time and energy you put into being angry at them, you're losing that time and energy to further the kingdom of God. So you want to sit there and focus on everything they've done wrong. You're right. They're wrong. But why focus on that? when that time and energy could have been done for the Lord. For the Lord. Go with me, if you will, to Romans 12, please. Because we need to kind of stop here and talk about these three people. Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. Romans 12, please. Now, I don't know which one you are, under your season of life, you can go from different people. Let's say you're Paul. You don't know how. You have found yourself in the middle of a situation. You didn't ask for this. You didn't want this. In fact, you wish you could do whatever you can to get out of it. But you are smack dab in the middle of a situation. You got one side talking to you. You got another side talking to you. And this is what I've seen with human nature. It's not that we're looking for the truth. We're looking to get people on our side. And we do it so eloquently. We do it so with such a diplomacy. Hey, let me sit down and talk to you. And I just want to share to you what they've done and what they've said. So that way you can have a real understanding of the situation that's going on. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Proverbs warns me, though, of this. I talk to one person and their side sounds right. And then I talk to the other person and their side sounds right. So what do we do sometimes? We only hear one side and we make judgment calls. And we say things like this. Oh, they're my friend. I've known them for years. I would trust them. They would never lead me down the wrong path. I have noticed this. Even the people I love and trust are always biased in how we tell a story. We are. Proverbs tells us, get both sides. So if you are in a Paul situation, the biblical response is to get both sides of the situation. The biblical response is to constantly point them back towards the scriptures. Matthew 18, have you went and talked to them one-on-one? Okay, have you taken two or three witnesses? Have you taken it to the church? Have you prayed over it? Have you fasted over it? Oh, they've wronged you. Have you forgiven them? Oh, you've wronged them. Have you told them you're sorry? 
Luke 6 tells them you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for them. You just keep giving them scriptures. If they truly want the situation to be better, they will receive God's word, they will understand God's word, and they will try to apply God's word. If they're just trying to win the fight, they're going to start pushing you off to the side. You don't get it. You don't care. You're just taking their side. No, the side I'm taking is the side of Jesus Christ. Because the side of the Bible is the only side I care about at this point. That's how you're supposed to handle it as Paul. You don't need all the gory details. You don't need to understand this or that. You need to keep pointing people back towards the Bible. The Bible. That's what Paul did. Paul, Onesimus has wronged you, Philemon, but he's a brother now in the Lord. Can you forgive him and can you look at him as a brother? That's the scriptural response. Okay, what happens if you're Onesimus in this story? You messed up. There's no defense of what you did. You have completely messed up. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What a blessing that you're a new creation in the Lord. And you've heard me say before out here, the eight most powerful words in the English language, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me. That's what you do. I have wronged you, I have hurt you, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me. What are they going to do with that information? I have no idea. Take a look here at Romans 12. Look at verse 18. If it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That verse is powerful. If it is possible, the relationship may not get fixed on this planet. They may want to hold the grudge. They may want to harbor unforgiveness. They may want to harbor bitterness. And you can't do a single thing about that. If it is possible, I hope and pray it is. But sometimes it's not. As much as depends on you, you are only responsible to do what you can. I've said I'm sorry. I've asked for forgiveness. I've written a letter. I've texted them. I've called them. I've done this. I've done that. Then you've done everything you can. Well, they still haven't forgiven me. Then you can't do anything about it. Now it's on their burdens, on their shoulders. Live peaceably with all men. Your job is just to represent Jesus in peace. Don't waste your time and energy that could be used in furthering the kingdom and the gospel trying to rebuild this bridge that they don't want to. You can't make them. Now what happens if you're Philemon? You have been wronged. And you can prove it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You, you have been wronged. And I tell you, righteous anger is a powerful emotion. When you know that you have been wronged, and you know you have the right to be angry, it can almost feel good. And so what happens is you've got to keep that feeling going. You've got to keep replaying the situation in your head. You've got to keep explaining the situation to people that haven't heard it. Because when they agree with you, oh, that makes it even feel better. Look at all the people that think that I have been wrong. This is great. And now they all think this person's an awful person. This is even getting better. You can't keep that up. What happens is that righteous anger becomes sinful anger pretty quick. And what happens is you've given the enemy a foothold, and that foothold becomes, according to Corinthians, a stronghold. And next thing you know, you have a root of bitterness in your life, and your joys disappear because you want to harbor resentment and anger and bitterness. So what are you supposed to do? Verse 19, beloved, same chapter. Do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have seen good people overcome by evil through the emotions. They can't let it go. They can't forgive. They can't move past it. They started out right, then ended up 
wrong. And the person that started out wrong ended up right. Oh, it's sad. Because what happened is verse 21, they were overcome by evil. Forgiveness is a powerful tool. Please remember what forgiveness is biblically. Forgiveness is I'm letting it go. It doesn't mean what this person did was right. It doesn't mean what this person did is defensible. It just means I have let it go and I have chosen to not let it have any power over me. So often when we look at forgiving somebody, it's like, well, that makes everything they did right. No, it doesn't. They're still completely, utterly wrong. You have just chosen to not let it control you and you've done the picture of Christ. Like it says in Ephesians, you forgive others just as in Christ Jesus forgave you. I don't know where you're at with these three people. If you're Paul, you just keep giving scriptures. Careful that you don't get into the muddy details of stuff. It doesn't matter. If you're Onesimus, you ask for forgiveness. You try to build a bridge of peace, but you're a new creation in the Lord. If you're Philemon, you forgive and you let it go. I don't know which one, but I'm telling you what I love about this book is the straightforward practicalness of this. What does Philemon do? I don't know what he does. Paul ends it with this, verse 22, But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as does Mark, Aristocrat, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We know this is written very similar to the time of Colossians. We know that some of these people are also mentioned in the book of Colossians. So like I said, Onesimus is. I would like to think in my mind Philemon was written first. And that Philemon said, he's my brother. He's useful to you. Glory be to God. And that's when you hear about Onesimus being beloved and faithful. I don't know what happened. But I like seeing a tiny glimpse of the church 2,000 years ago that has problems just like we have problems. But they also tried to handle it biblically and straightforwardly. And I love that. What a picture for us today on how to handle situations of anger, frustration, bitterness, unforgiveness, people wronging us. It's a great picture to say, I'm going to be one of these three people and I want to handle it biblically as well. Worship team, if you want to come forward. What I want to do is this.